Welcome everybody to Black Coffee and Theology. Welcome everybody back to the pod. Thank you so much for all your love and support. And on today's episode, I am joined by special guest, my friend, my sister, Lisa Colon Delay. And Lisa is a podcaster, an author, a teacher, a spiritual director. And I will leave links to her show, Spark My Muse, which is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful podcast, as well as her book, The Wildland Within, which we reference in this episode, of course, and we unpack that book. Uh, and I'm going to leave uh, links to both of those resources in the show notes. Uh, so Lisa, she's a wonderful human being, and we've known each other for some time now. And so on this episode, we discuss her book, and we talk about desert spirituality, which you may know a lot about um, or not, and that's okay. <laughs> so desert spirituality, uh in a nutshell, is the faith of women and men who chose to live, live very distinct lives in the wilderness settings. And I have always been intrigued and spurred on by the desert mothers and fathers. And later on in the show, I will read a bit from Thomas Merton's book, The Wisdom, Wisdom of the Desert. So sit back and relax and tune in for another episode of Black Coffee and Theology. Thank you all. Because a lot of times that's, that's an oppressive thing to say to people who've been shut up and their voices haven't been heard on purpose. And so he talks about it in a center down way, like center down to that center point. And, you know, sometimes when you do that, the community that you might have been raised in or the people group that you might be associated with that center down place isn't a place of total quiet it might be a, pray, a place of praise and worship it might be a place of song it, you know mm. it, it's just not a it doesn't have to be a place of formulas and words it can be moans and groans it, yeah. it can be that center down place doesn't have to be like Shh, don't say anything you're wrecking it that for yeah. for many uh people of color in communities they need to stand up shout clap sing and that is centered down all right welcome again everybody to black coffee and theology and i am joined by my wonderful friend uh, Lisa Clone Delay. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Robert. I love interacting with you. I love what you're up to. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, I just so enjoy you, my friend. Um, it's and, uh, yeah, and so <laughs> just over just uh, this time of getting to know you, uh, it's just been awesome uh, just building this uh, friendship. And so in this new podcast venture, as I was thinking of who can I have on, I'm like, oh, Lisa, she got to come on. 
like, 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 it's a must. Um, <laughs> it's definite um, because I'm, I'm thinking if I'm going to have musings and conversations around theology, I got to bring my friend on. There we go. Um, <laughs> and so today uh, we're going to be talking uh, about uh, desert spirituality, the desert uh, mothers and fathers. And of course, we're going to be talking about Lisa's book, uh, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. Okay. Um, yeah, so Lisa, just um, first, before we get into the conversation, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, what's important to you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so my name is Lisa DeLay and my pen name is Lisa Colon DeLay. I'm, I was born in Puerto Rico and um, raised in Pittsburgh mostly. And my jam is kind of spiritual formation and trying to be a good apprentice of Jesus and seeing um, who else I can be like Jesus to in a really stumbling, kind of fumbling, stumbling way. Uh, but I had wanted to write a book about spiritual formation for probably since 2009, I had some part of an idea of what this book would be. And it came out this April. And what I wanted to do is not just speak about spiritual formation in, in the typical ways it's sometimes introduced to us and from the certain kind of people it gets introduced by, which can often be like uh, white men in cloistered or religious communities is often we'll hear about it sort of through those voices. And I wanted to bring along a lot of other voices to speak to what is meant by contemplative spirituality, spiritual practices, and also uh, push back on some of the, I would say, errant ways of Western Christianity that brings different things into Christianity that are kind of... Um, well, I would just say they're, they're not really of Jesus or the early disciples and apostles and why that is. And so we have a whole history to, to look at and a little piece of the book that kind of shows these influences from really empire influences. And so that's kind of the background of the book. And then we get into other things in the book, but I wanted to make sure that we started off sort of with a historical cultural perspective. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Okay. You hit a number of good things. You already started. <laughs> I jumped in. <laughs> Sorry. There's this good cooking. Um, um, so you, so you mentioned um, contemplative prayer mm -hmm. and you talked about spiritual practices and sp spiritual formation. And I think mm -hmm. it, it's good to start the conversation talking about desert spirituality and, um, for those who are maybe new to uh, this topic of desert spirituality and the, and the desert mothers and fathers, mm -hmm. let's give them a little bit of a background of, yeah. of what, you know, what that is, because uh, yeah. this is our conversation all day. You know, this is, <laughs> right. this is something yeah. we love talking about. So yeah. let's give a little bit of a cliff notes of, mm -hmm. of what that entails. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that we're going to have some context. 
what happened in Christianity early on, it was this really maligned, persecuted um, group of people that were seen as a cult or a, a split off from Judaism. And the Roman government came down so hard persecuting and all the Christian, a bunch of Christians, whoever they could get their hands on, um, forcing them away from their homes into exile, uh, throwing them into the Colosseums to be eaten by lions and um, tortured. There was so much going on for the first few centuries of Christianity that was an incredible persecution. And what happens is uh, the, the worst, I should say, not the, it was called the Great Persecution that happened in 303 CE. And that was really the last major persecution of Christians because something really weird happened. The emperor after that, Constantine I or Constantine the Great, came to Christ after being a pagan and pretty horrible for a long time. He came to Christ and then it was the endorsed religion of the Roman Empire, which we're talking about the superpower of the world at the time. And so he got the Nicene Creed to happen. He got, he said, let's all get on the same page because Christianity was more in the Jewish tradition of argument is fine, differing opinions is fine. This is just how we roll. We get together, we argue, we, we um, eat together and then we leave and go home. And he said, no, 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 let's make sure we're all on the same exact page. So they got the Nicene Creed at his doing and this kind of laid out the, the creedal Christianity that we know now about uh, affirming and believing in um, the Trinity, the Virgin Mary as the mother of Jesus and so forth. So what happened in this time is that there was this great upheaval in Christianity, went from being persecuted and marginalized and oppressed in major ways to endorsed and the, the wealthy and the upper class got nice spots in the um, authority of the church, in the government of the church, and everything shifted. It became uh, the good life and the cities where this was in, like Alexandria, Rome, and Antioch, they became kind of, it became luxurious in a way to be a Christian. There were a lot of people who pushed against that and said, something's really gone wrong. <laughs> this is, this is uh, getting real weird. And so one of the first people who, to do something about it was Anthony the Great, who's considered the father of all monks, as, as he's considered now. And uh, he was an early desert monk. And he went out, I'm trying to see when he went out here. Um, he moved to the desert in 270 CE, and he died in 356. Because of him, other people came to the desert, and he sort of led the way to this exodus of sorts to a place of austerity, a place of devotion, a place away from the luxuries and trappings of um, empire Christianity. And uh, at one point, the desert was filled with a half a million people are doing this. It's a really incredible movement yeah. in the early church. And I think Protestants know very little of this, but this is our this is our Christian history. And this is prior to the split between the um, the Byzantine um, Christians and the Rome Roman Christians who wanted a, a pope to be in charge. And, the, and it's before the, that schism in 1000 CE. And it's before the Protestant Reformation was just a split off from Roman Catholicism, a protest of that. And so we're talking really, really early. This is our common Christian history. 
so what happened is these desert mothers and fathers, there were both men and women who were spiritual leaders at this time, people would go out to the desert, seek their guidance, their wisdom, be um, spiritually directed and guided by them in devotion to God, they would be prayed for, sometimes they'd become students and hermits themselves. But it was a very austere way of living with very scant food and resources. Um, but their teachings are still read today that you can get the book um, sayings of the desert fathers and mothers um, yeah. and any anywhere you could look on amazon or anywhere else Let's you could see go. it there's a lot of wisdom there there's um and it's really a kind of purifying um of the basic way we follow jesus um, yeah. so that's that's kind of a i like yeah i love how you frame that be and i love something on what you said mm -hmm. I love that framing because how I think of it is um, that flight into the desert um, mm -hmm. by by Christians, the desert fathers and the desert mothers is mm -hmm. is I think the banner over that could be stated as flee, be silent and pray. And yeah, I think exactly. um, that's what uh, Abba Arsenius uh, mm -hmm. heard from the Lord. Um, mm -hmm. That's what, yeah. what he said is. And so I think that flight um, by many is that they, they felt this draw, they wanted to draw near to God and they wanted yes. to flee, be silent and to pray, right? And, right? and that spirituality could kind of be characterized around those, um, that unction, right, um, is mm. to flee, leave the things, the, the, the comforts of your home and the comforts mm. of Christianity uh, and the things that you hold dear, mm. be silent, <laughs> draw into the solitude of, uh, of, of, the, of the desert and pray, right, and commune mm. in that place. And you're right, all in that place in the desert, um, there wasn't a lot of comfort. There wasn't the, the <laughs> empire Christianity was disconnected from them. And so, yes, mm -hmm. there was community was formed in a different way. Uh, communion mm -hmm. with God was formed in a different way. And a lot of times plenty of people have critiques about, uh, the desert mothers and fathers, but I, I, I like that framing that you, you, uh, gave to us there um, to start us off. I love that. I love mm. that. I love that. Yeah. And in a way, it was really a new kind of martyrdom because mm. being a Christian mm. Mm -mm -mm. wasn't something was going to get you killed anymore. So you still are a living sacrifice to God. You know, you, this wow. is kind of part of that. What I love about the Desert Fathers and Mothers is, is they are not relying on tons of doctrine or, or dogmatics they're getting back to the beatitudes that's the that's a big one sermon on the mount what mm. what was jesus saying and how should we live and then they lived as simply as they could and they gave what they could to people whoever needed it and it's just real basic stuff but when i think about where i live and my comforts um it's easy to get you know to um love things and use people instead of the other way around, love people and use things uh, because we have abundance. And I think sometimes our abundance needs to be called into question or reflected on or called into check because what it does is create other gods in our life and, and it makes us worse human beings sometimes.
Yeah, I like that. I I think in the giving up of the comforts, right? Because I, I, mm-hmm. what you're bringing to my mind of the giving up of the comforts, I, I think of it uh, in two different ways. One, I think of the people first fleeing into the desert in the initial giving up of the comforts, mm-hmm. but then remaining in the desert mm. is continuously giving up of comforts. Those are two di- very mm-hmm. different uh, sacrifices mm-hmm. um, that are testaments to God and to the world, right? Mm. It's one thing to flee to the desert to be with these um, monks. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, you get there and you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing here. (laughs) There's literally nothing here. Um, (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) This is not cool at all. I mean, because I'm thinking about the stark reality of what they were building there. was not only not flashy or cool, it was so radically opposed to what Christianity was at the time. You know, there yeah. the councils and different mm-hmm. things that had been establishing doctrine to your point. Mm-hmm. Um, here were people trying to uh, go back to the basics of Christianity mm-hmm. and they're suddenly not you know, it, it seems like you're going backwards and you're not progressing, right? And mm-hmm. um, so the sacrifice now of you you fled now to the desert, and now to remain here requires something. Mm. Um, that's a lot, and, and you know, in the testament that that speaks to me today, um, I'm just stri- I'm just struck by that as as we're talking. Um, that's a lot. It's one thing to give up something for God and sacrifice one time, but then to remain there. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's, a, it's a commitment to a lifestyle. And really what was happening was the earliest um, incarnations of the monastic movement. So this is prior to monasteries. Yeah. And um, it's the beginnings. Like monks lived you could call them hermits, I guess, or ascetics, mm-hmm. and they would live in what they call cells, which is the same thing that is supposed to happen in, in prisons now. That's why they're called cells, because you're supposed to, and they're called penitentiaries, because you are you do your penance and you, in the cell. And it has a spiritual, it's perverse now, of course, but it had a, a spiritual root to it. And the idea was when you're alone with God, first the demons come out, whatever that might be, and, and then you're purified of that, you know, everything is stripped down and it's just you and God and it can be, you know, a deafening silence really. Um, and then more people were coming, but they weren't staying communities necessarily. They were kind of operating as solo hermits, occasionally meeting together. And later that became uh, groups of, of hermits or ascetics living together and more of a, a full lifestyle. And then when John Cassian studies what's going on there, brings it back to Rome, that began what was soon the uh, Benedictine monasteries, the first ones that for a thousand years, these were the the things in Europe that kept um, people, sometimes people safe or uh, kept a certain rule and, and that all came originally from the Eastern Fathers and the deserts of Egypt and Syria. 
Yeah, I think of how this, um, I think of how this decentralized, um, one, how it decentralized power. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and how um, it positioned a soul to um, know God and to, um, yeah, go after God, right? Um, you know, in the stripping, right? You know, like, yeah, you don't have any other, t- <laughs> I mean, you're, you have, <laughs> you know, because you're talking about the cells, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're being face to face with your inner and outer demons, right? Yeah, and, right. and the thing that you lust after you, mm-hmm. you, you war after mm-hmm. you are face to face with that thing. Right. <laughs> you are nowhere to, to go <laughs> there. You have nowhere. What mm-hmm. is it you desire most? Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, but suddenly now power is decentralized, mm-hmm. um, within the context of the church. Mm-hmm. And now a soul is bare before God. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that is that is striking, <laughs> um, yeah. and and what that that's a lot. Um, desert yeah. spirituality is a, it, and I think that to me that's why desert spirituality has such a a beauty to it and a, a seed to it because it gives the individual uh, believer such power. What's in my cup? What's in my cup? Now's the time of the podcast where I share with you what's in my cup. So what's in my cup? Well, it's a bit of South African tea. Fresh pock rooibos tea is what's in my cup for today and for this interview as I sit with my friend. Hmm. And it's good to point out, too, that they didn't think of this on their own. This is what Jesus did before his ministry. Jesus yeah. went into the desert places, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> had not had nothing to eat for 40 days, yes, obviously yes. kind of an extreme situation. And then what happens? The devil comes yeah. to Jesus, you know, and, uh-huh. and that's what prepared Jesus for his ministry. It happened first then he goes and ministers and so it was a purifying even for the lord um and so they're imitating these these people going to the desert they're imitating jesus they're like what did jesus do oh jesus actually went to an actual desert i'll i can do that there's yeah. one over here and and then i can get some guidance from some of these hermits that are there but i want to be like jesus i want to copy and imitate him and do his what his words say I should do. So it's it's very purifying. And in a time where Christianity suddenly, very suddenly, practically overnight, gets infused with a ton of money, a ton mm-hmm. of opulence, a, a ton of rich people going, oh, you know, if I'm a cleric now, I can move up really fast in the government. And you get you get this response of like whoa 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 let's go back to regular devotion and just imitating jesus so you have a real split here of of what's going on but you also have a a direct imitation of jesus christ and i think that that's that's kind of for me as i've gotten older deconstructed or, or whatever i think you know 
make Jesus my center. Let me make Jesus my center. Some of the dogmatics can fall away. Some of the um, minor points can fall away, but I don't want to lose sight of Jesus. Mm, okay, that's a good... Okay, I want to segue into your book, because I, that's a good segue. And I want to go. Um, let's go to chapter five. Um, because it's called uh, chapter five is weather fronts, uh, witnessing our afflicting thoughts. And I will say this. First, how I take how I took in your book. Um, I feel like a lot of your book um is framed around desert spirituality. And I, f I feel like it infuses all, it's infused all throughout the book, even as you include the voice of so many minority people groups, there's like these uh, beautiful hints of contemplative practices all, and um, spiritual practices all throughout the book, which I love. Uh, so uh that i'll say that um um uh, first um yeah so first what i want to ask is in chapter five you talk about uh i want to read a little bit of it before i get into the nitty-gritty of the chapter mm -hmm. um okay so it says the land within us has weather and it's time to learn what that means climate on earth is the larger system in which we inhabit in meteorological terms it's a 30-year average of weather conditions weather is a particular day-to-day -day combination of things such as air pressure temperature and per precipitation uh, we've all encountered days of bad weather outside what do we do about the wild weather that moves through our interior landscapes? Okay, and you so you so you set this framework about weather fronts. That's actually this beautiful picture that moves throughout um, uh, this chapter. So talk to me about what was in your mind um, for weather fronts and how it interacts with uh, the human spirit and the soul. One of the most beautiful things I think Bagrius brings to mind that we've lost over the ages, but is just now coming back in certain neuroscience and, and psychological uh, circles is that we are not our thoughts. That might sound really simple if you, if you already understand it and you're living that way, but a lot of us have gone through life and I'm, I'm including myself, is that if I'm anxious and I'm medicated, <laughs> so that I'm not so anxious. So I've been anxious and it's stemmed from trauma and probably just my makeup. Um, I think I'm an anxious person. This is the kind of person I am. What Evagrius says is, no, you're not your thoughts. You are a person who's experiencing anxiety, but maybe tomorrow that won't be you. And there's all these other thoughts that come in and plague us and repeat over and over. And that's actually not you. That's just your general affliction of thoughts, a temptation sometimes, they come and they go. They're like weather. And we don't assume that the clouds are us or that we're moving the clouds in our actual environment. But, um, and we know when it's raining, if we wait a little bit, it probably will be sunshining again. And Vagris was trying to teach this to 
the students that he had in the desert because he wanted to prevent them from going in a bad direction. It was it was totally a preventative medicine type thing. So what he said is these afflicting thoughts, and, and there's eight of them. I'll just read them quickly. Gluttony, lust or fornication, avarice, uh, which is kind of uh, the love of accumulating, dejection or sadness, which isn't your typical, um, it, it's more of a nostalgia or wallowing. It's staying there for a long time, not just your typical sadness that happens in a regular day. Then wrath, anger is wrath. Acedia, which is a kind of despondency, a listlessness. There's a little um, stuff on that in the book. Main glory is um, related to selfishness. And then pride, he says, is kind of... Um, it's almost like a break from reality where you don't think you need the grace of God. So he was saying all these things happen in the form of temptations that come to us, but they're morally neutral. We don't have to feel bad about them happening, but if we give them attention, if we continue to think of them, if they take up our energy at all uh, in our day, then it moves us towards sinful patterns. Yeah. And so what he was trying to do was just say, don't worry, that's normal. All that stuff that goes through your head it sometimes really sucks or is really super stupid or weird that's okay we're human we have vulnerabilities and that happens but don't stay there if it's something is is don't give it extra attention and focus bring your focus back to jesus and so what he was kind of like a a doctor of the soul if you will um that has really stayed with me because what happened later with pope gregory he took these ideas of Evagrius, but he turned them into sinning. And he talked about the seven deadly sins, which include most of these, but some, some have been combined or there's been a new one added and one dropped. But what he's already talking about is some real shame stuff. Hey, you screwed up again. Now you have to confess that and do penance and you're in a moral debt now. But that winds up kind of twisting, in my opinion, twisting what God is up to and even the nature of God because it winds up making God kind of like a big policeman in the sky or something like that. And really, um, God loves us and wants the best for us. What Evagrius is trying to do is he's trying to use preventative medicine so we don't get caught in these sicknesses of sin. Wow. And yeah. And so this desert elder Evagrius was, mm -hmm. he was preventative and just saying, hey, these are going to happen. Mm -hmm. Don't <laughs> like, don't get crossed up when they happen. Like I mean, do, do, yeah, don't like it. it you're going to see it coming and then you'll be like, oh, right. I was told about that one. OK, what's the yeah. next thing? Yeah. And what I love about Evagrius um, is is this is how I view life. Like I I very much. You know, I it's this is how I take in my emotions, right? And I think again, this is the gift that desert spirituality has brought to me. I spend a lot of time being very contemplative and uh, mining out um, uh, in prayer, like where my heart is, mm. and I don't get tripped up by the things that I find there. Mm. Um, and I do this prayer call that I've been calling for years before I had language for it, uh, uh, called descending into the heart. Mm. Um, and as I pray in that way, when I descend into my heart and, oh, yo, it's pride in here. It's lust in here. It's mm -hmm. all these things. 
I don't go, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why when people say things like, Robert, you're prideful. Duh. I don't, (laughs) you're not going to tell me anything that I do not know Mm. that gets me uh, like, oh my, really? Oh, not me. Not, not. Or, or how dare you say that of me? Yeah. You already are like, yeah. "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Not Rob, not, not, you're not talking about Robert. (laughs) Do you know who I am? No. I mean, because for me, I'm also not passive in that place. I think the the gift that contemplative prayer can give to you and the prayer of descending into the heart can give you is you are both not surprised and you're also active about, Lord, I want this. I'm not surprised, but I also need help, mm-hmm. um, divine help in rooting this out of me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because I see it often enough and I'm mm-hmm. also still enough to... I uh, say, hey, I see these weather fronts, as you as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not surprised that it rains in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's that really speaks to what I was trying to say in the book. Is I first talk about climate before I talk about weather, and certain climates in our in our regular Earth systems, certain climates have uh, drought to them as a real main thing, or maybe they have a lot of flooding, or maybe they have a really hot kind of ecosystem, or maybe it's a really chilly one. But whatever our climate is, which is made up of the many influences on our lives, including where we're born, who our parents are, what we look like in to the world, um, our education, and so many other things create a certain climate so that certain kinds of weather fronts will come through. If you've had a traumatic climate and you've been traumatized you're probably going to have certain um things weather fronts that come up again and again and again like um one time you said this and i've heard this before too it's it's been my story as well so much anger (laughs) i've had so much anger and you mentioned this on on twitter when you sit, sit with it long enough the anger tells you i'm actually grief I'm actually sadness underneath that anger. And it's because probably trauma was some part of how that weather front got there in the first place. It was part of your climate. And and I think just understanding that giving ourselves tons of opportunities to reflect on our inner world and all the different things going on there, all those eight things, and then repent all the time, not repent uh, as a shameful worm, but say, I love you, God, I'm coming I'm turning my face to you again. I'm turning back again. And that we know that um, that door is always open. God isn't pissed off. God loves us and God forgave us. And that's already been done by the work of Christ. But if our lives don't have the, the looking inward, the descending into the heart to reflect, then we won't turn back again. We just kind of go along stupidly and blindly in our own lives. And, and so this, I would like to know how often do you do this descent into the heart? Is it once a week, once a day, once an hour? When do you do it? I I love it, uh, this question, because it, I for me, it's every day, mm-hmm. at minimum, at least once a day. And, and I say that knowing that for some that might feel extra spiritual, um, for me, it's become a lifeline for my mental uh, health 
primarily and then for my spiritual health. And I want to frame it around that. Um, It's maintenance, right? Yeah, it's it's very much maintenance. And I found uh, because of my dysfunctional upbringing, um, I, I, I am prone to certain things. I love how you framed it, how you've framed it around climate and then weather, um, a dysfunctional home has made me prone to anxiety Mm -hmm. and certain core wounds. Mm -hmm. Um, so anxiety and depression are, are things that I am prone to. And so this, this prayer, of descending into the heart and then later in the chapter you you talk about the prayer of the quiet um for me it's a must that i do it every day it's not even uh if i have time for it uh like that that is just part of i eat breakfast every day and it's not because wow robert you are so spiritual you're such a man of god you uh like (laughs) I have to do it. Um, yeah, it's important to help ha- to help you function in life. I feel the same way for myself. Yeah. It's not like an op. It's not optional. Like, oh, what is a great spiritual thing? It's like, no. I've <laughs> I've noticed if I don't eat all day, I also don't feel well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't do this, I also don't feel. Well. Yeah, and I the reason why I want to say that is because less people feel discouraged or people think, wow, you really must feel like praying all day. Like, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't feel that. I know what I feel like when I don't do this and mm-hmm. I don't like that feeling. Yeah. And so this descending into the heart, I, I felt the benefits of that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and that, that, that leads me to talking about that prayer of the quiet. They're linked to me because mm-hmm. um, on page 102, you talk about it, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the prayer of the quiet and that, that is very much linked to me when I am quiet and I begin that prayer of descent. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed for me, who's, who I've grown up in traumatic homes where, where there's lots of chaos mm. and where I felt unsafe, the learning how to pray this prayer of the quiet and to mm. descend has been so healing for me it is transforming me and so i love that you bring this up so yeah so talk about why you included this this section uh on the prayer of the quiet um on page 102 yeah thank you for that opportunity to to mention this because most of us feel i was raised in in a christian home with a with a pastor for a dad but it was a traumatic a traumatic uh, bunch of things that happened um and sometimes religious people are the most abusive so with (laughs) so what happens with how i was raised to pray is it involves words it involves communication talking to god uh involves images involves concepts uh because that's what communication is right listening is actually communication too and this began a journey for me of realizing what prayer can be for me but also what's been in history and for people who are very devout and intimate with god is that you can pray by listening you can pray by not saying any words or having any concepts or coming out with a great bunch of words or arguments to say toward getting something that you want you can actually just sort of sit there and allow god's presence to sink more deeply in or just to find and center down to 
the stillest part of wherever you are. And that can be really hard to find if you're in a trauma situation or if you're in an, an active struggle with something. You might not find anything that's very centered in your heart. You might have racing thoughts. This is kind of below all that. If you can imagine the ocean in a storm, if you continue to go down, down, down into the ocean towards the ocean floor, it is calm there. It's a, it's a different kind of atmosphere there. And so that's kind of what the prayer of the quiet asks you to, to kind of center way down to this quiet place where God is, not, not where you are, but where God has made God's home within you. And we know that from the Bible that Jesus says, you know, my father and I will come in and sup with you. And um, that kind of communion, like imagine eating in silence with someone you really love. I think about that's kind of how the prayer of the quiet sort of feels. And you don't have to come up with anything clever to say to God. You can just settle down, quiet down, and um, try to sense God's love for you. And it's it really has to be sort of a practice. If you're not used to quieting down or centering down, I wouldn't say this is going to be natural for too many people. Uh, maybe sure. if you're an extreme introvert, that this you're you have a already a, a step in the right direction. But we can understand God as sort of the source, the, the ground of being and the source of all things. And at that center before speech is silence. So it is really sort of a grounding practice. And and you might need help like walking through it. And sometimes you can find sort of like guided meditations toward this on YouTube or Lexio Divina is a way to pray in four different movements that ends in this quiet spot. And it's kind of nice training wheels to get you into that mind frame, but it's not a very typically Western, commonly a Western Christian thing, but it is very much part of the historical Christian church and our ways of interacting with God. Um, I think that, so what we're talking about is, is called apophatic prayer. And that means it doesn't employ words. It's a mindful relinquishment and a communing with God. Even if you don't have a felt sense of God being with you, you're just quieting down and acknowledging God, acknowledging that God is in and through our being, in and through the created world. Um, and it really creates a kind of mindfulness, reflective capacity as you begin this to reflect more deeply on perhaps things that need to change in your life or um, ways that you need God's help to then ask for it maybe at another time with words. But what's good is what I felt like is liberated from the pressure of praying like the perfect prayer. <laughs> like what combination lock could I use with God to get the thing I need? It's like, well, yeah. No, you can't. <laughs> that doesn't work like that. But you can quiet down and find God there in the center. So I am reading a bit from The Wisdom of the Desert by Thomas Merton. And this is from the introduction, page three in my copy. In the 4th century AD, the deserts of Egypt, Palestine, Arabia, and Persia were peopled by a race of men who have left behind them a strange reputation. 
They were the first Christian hermits who abandoned the cities of the pagan world to live in solitude. Why did they do this? The reasons were many and various, but they can all be summed up in one word as the quest for salvation. And what was salvation? Certainly, it was not something they sought in mere exterior conformity to the customs and dictates of any social group. In those days, men had become keenly conscious of the strictly individual character of salvation. Society, which meant pagan society, limited by the horizons and prospects of life in this world, was regarded by them as a shipwreck from which each single individual man had to swim for his life. Black Coffee and Theology Pod is a production of Three Black Men, the podcast about theology, culture, and the world around us. Follow us on Twitter at Three Black Men. If you like the content that you are receiving here and want to receive more, whether that is in longer conversations, essays, devotions, and videos from either myself, Sam, or Trey, please sign up for for our Patreon at patreon.com slash three black men. Don't forget to like, rate, and review Black Coffee and Theology Pod as well as Three Black Men.